Hello, everybody. Hello. Love a bit of audience participation. Um, it's good to see you all. Um, on the shacket front, we're going to be doing a whip around. Whip round? Whip around? Whip round at the end of the gathering so we can buy Tom one for Christmas. Because he keeps going on about it. So the only conclusion I can come to is that he's incredibly jealous of the shacket. So um, we'll be doing that at the end of church. Um, yeah, it's good to be in church tonight. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm so glad you're here. Just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm so glad Does everyone feel affirmed? Bit of affirmation, all that good stuff. So I, for one, I'm so glad that each and every one of you are here. And we're going to jump straight into the passage that we're looking at tonight. My iPad case is magnetic, so it keeps getting stuck. Um, So if you have a Bible to hand, please do grab it. Um, We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to 10. Um, So if you've got one, get it out, and whilst you're finding it, I'm just going to set the scene a little bit um, of the context of where we're heading tonight. So if you've been around the past couple of weeks, you'll know that we've been journeying through the book of Acts, uh, or Acts of the Apostles, as it's sometimes called. Um, And we've been thinking about this theme in both the morning and in the evening, um, about exiles and ambassadors. And exile being someone that's taken from uh, their home or their homeland, somewhere that's familiar and known, to a place that is unknown, unfamiliar, um, alien and foreign. And then that's an exile and an ambassador being someone that in that place that isn't their home, representing the interests of someone else or somewhere else. And we have this call on our lives, the biblical call on our lives, like the Bible tells us to be ambassadors for God. And we've been looking at how we can step into that call as a church. So that's a little bit of the context of where we've been heading. We're going to be reading about a guy called Paul. So Paul used to be called Saul. He had a bit of a rebrand when some stuff happened. Long story short, um, he was on the road to a place called Damascus. Um, Paul was known for persecuting Christians. Um, He was kind of a Pharisee, a hardline Jewish leader, um, very orthodox, um, and he hated Christians. And he led their persecution for years after Jesus died and the church began to spread. Paul was the guy that was in charge of all of that. So he's on the road to Damascus. He ends up becoming blind and has a radical encounter with Jesus, the risen Jesus Christ. Um, And then, long story short, he's blind, he gets healed. um, 180 turnaround, total transformation. Um, And essentially, he leaves behind his old ways, this stuff that he's been doing, and he begins to tell people about Jesus. And during this time, uh, he convinces quite a few Jews um, to follow Jesus as well. But predominantly, he's speaking to the Gentiles. He's speaking to non-Jews. He's planting churches. He's doing all kinds of other cool stuff. And he's traveling around with his friends that he's made along the way. We'll meet a couple of them tonight. Preaching the gospel, healing people, and the rest. So that's the context. Here's the passage. Acts 16, 1 to 10. The words are behind me. Come on. So, Acts 16. Well, this is hard with one hand. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Paul came to, let's go Derby, and then Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. 
Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not let them, would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man, a Macedonian, standing Oh, I've lost my place. And begging him, come over to Macedonia and help me. After Paul had the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. I'm just going to take a sip of water. So, Acts 16. Key points to summarize. Paul and his mate Silas... Uh, they're going on their second missionary journey, essentially a church planting mission. They end up in Lystra. There they meet Timothy, who's a young guy. He's really passionate about um, the Lord. And Timothy joins them. Then they're planning to head north into Asia. But for whatever reason, the Lord blocks their way. They end up heading west. I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? But west. Uh, to try and go again north, but nope, the Holy Spirit's saying none of that, so he blocks them again. And they end up in a place called Troas, which is a seaport, so it's by the coast. And it's kind of on the edge of what is like modern-day Turkey. It's basically like on the border. If you cross the sea, you're in Europe, you're into kind of Greece and Macedonia. So Paul has this dream about this Macedonian man. He says that he needs their help. And conveniently, they end up at Troas, which is a seaport. So it's pretty easy to jump on a boat and to get over to Macedonia and to fulfill the call that God has spoken to them about in a dream. And also at the end in verse 10, it says that uh, he called us, us being Luke, the writer of Acts. So there's Silas, there's Paul, there's Luke, there's probably a couple of others. It's a bit of a lad's holiday. Um, They head into Macedonia and it's quite the journey. So it's a nice picture for it, isn't it? So where are we heading tonight? Tonight, we're going to be looking at what to do when you get blown off course. What to do when you get blown off course. When life takes a turn that you don't quite expect. When, like Paul and his friends, you end up in a place that you didn't want to be, you didn't intend to be, you didn't plan to be. What to do when you get blown, of course. So we're going to be looking at this passage. We're going to be looking at Paul's experiences to see what God might be saying to us tonight. And the three things to do when you get blown off course are, one, addressing the closed doors. Two, not doing it alone. And three, remembering who sent you. And we're going to look at each of those three sections. And after each one, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take the opportunity to firstly pray, secondly chat, thirdly respond to each section. So I'll, I'll introduce an idea from the passage, unpack it a little bit, share a little bit of um, my experience or story, um, and then we're going to take a moment to reflect. So first thing, we're addressing the closed doors. Then we're going to take two minutes to pray in the quiet. Third, secondly, uh, not doing it alone. And on the theme of not doing it alone, we're just going to have a quick conversation with the person next to us. Um, and then finally, remembering who sent you, we're going to stand and we're going to respond to what God's saying. So for those of you who like a plan, that's where we're heading. So if you're all on board, let's jump right in. I wonder if you've ever been on a long journey. Maybe you've been on holiday somewhere far away. Maybe you did a, a gap year in somewhere tropical and remote and isolated. Um, maybe you've just been on a really long car ride. It's, I don't know, going across Europe or on a train or whatever it might be. Maybe you've ridden your bike from the top of the UK to the 
bottom of the UK. If Toby Bowd's here tonight, I'm pretty sure he did that. Um, and maybe you've walked, whatever it might be. I've done a couple of long journeys in my time. Um, in fact, one of them was just in this summer. Uh, so in September, it was the end of summer, um, I went to France with my family, which was a lovely time. Um, and there was my mum, my dad, me, my brother, um, my fiance Hannah. Hi, Hannah. And uh, my brother's wife, Maddie. And when we go to France, we more often than not, we go to the same place. We go to a place on the west coast uh, in, Von, in the Vendée region, um, if I'm saying that right. It's near a place called Le Pazopton, which has a spring harvest campsite, if anyone's been there. Um, I know there's a few people from Crooks who have been there before. Um, we usually drive when we do this. It's typically like a 13 to 14 hour car journey, so it's quite long. And because there's six of us, obviously you can't fit six people in a five-seater car. So we had to take two cars. So um, me and Hannah, we go with my mum and dad. And obviously it's quite a long drive. I usually sleep, listen to some music, listen to a podcast, watch a film, whatever it might be. And they've got this big, spacious estate. It's a, if you know your cars, it's a Skoda Superb. Yeah, we've got a couple of Skoda fans in the house tonight. Slovakia. Um, it's these big cars, um, very spacious, a lot of room, a lot of leg room, huge boots. It was a lovely ride down, very smooth drive. Um, my dad's a very experienced driver as well, if he's watching this. That's for you, Andy. Um, so the drive down to France was fine. It was smooth, lovely, loads of room. It was very pleasant, no complaints from me. But it was the drive back where things got a little bit tricky. So my brother and sister-in-law, they have this little red Ford Fiesta. And, you know, it's a decent car. It gets you from A to B. It does what you need. And for the two of them, it's very comfortable going on holiday. You can fit yourselves. You can fit your luggage, etc. But what they'd failed to consider was that whilst it was just the two of them coming down, me and Hannah were going back with them. So there was going to be four of us in this tiny little Ford Fiesta. And not only were there two extra people, double the human, there was two extra people's luggage. So there was double the human, double the luggage. Plus, it was 30 degrees the whole way back. It was one of the hottest days of the summer. So me and Hannah were sat in the back of this Ford Fiesta, sweating. It was horrible. It was pretty grim. In comparison to the Skoda experience, it was quite drastic. And after about seven hours of driving or so, we're kind of coming up to, um, to the channel, we're coming up to the Eurotunnel, to Calais, and as you'd expect with this kind of trip, you do have to fill up your car a couple of times because you obviously need petrol to be able to drive. And we're reaching Calais, and the car's telling us you've got 50 miles left, 50 miles left of fuel. And we think, okay, that's all right, we're about 15, 20 miles from Calais, we should be okay. But we've got some time. Our crossing's not until four, it's about two o'clock. So Maddie raises the question, rightfully, should we just get some fuel on this side or should we wait until we get to the UK? And my brother was saying, oh, let's just wait, let's just get there, we'll get some in the UK, it might be a bit cheaper as well. Hannah was indifferent, but me, the pragmatist, I said, no, let's just, we've got some time on this side, we might as well use it effectively. Let's go and get some fuel. And let me tell you now, it's a good job we did. Literally, as we finish having that conversation, the fuel light comes on. And that is never a good thing. <laughs> All it is is this tiny little light on the dashboard, but it has the power to put the fear of God into any man or woman. It's ridiculous. And we keep going along, and suddenly the fuel gauge, the number of how many miles that comes up on the dashboard, is creeping down and down and down and down. It started on 50. Every 10 seconds or so, we're losing a mile. I don't know what's happening, but all of a sudden, a sense of panic falls over the car. It's like, who do you believe? Who do you trust? Because... Was it wrong at the start or was it right at the start? Is it correct? Is it accurate? Is this actually happening? So we decided we need to do something about it. So 
I don't know about you if this ever happened to you, but we decided we'll turn off the aircon, if that will make any difference. And then we decided to turn off the radio as well, as if the radio has anything to do with the car's fuel consumption. But we thought it might, it might work. Um, and I do not advise this at all, but we decided to, on the bits where we didn't need to power the car, we just put the car in neutral and just let it roll. So there was us in this missile of a red Ford Fiesta driving down the roads towards Calais um, in neutral. It was, yeah, you'd fail your driving test if you did that, let me just say that. But nothing's working. The number keeps creeping down. The gauge keeps falling. So everyone that's not driving, we think, right, we need to get some fuel. So we get our phones out and we start searching Google Maps and we're trying to find the nearest petrol station. And you know, if you've experienced Google Maps, it can be temperamental at times. It's pretty nervy. Isaac's concentrating on trying to drive efficiently. But still, the fuel gauge keeps creeping down. And we reach the point where we've got 10 miles left. And just as that happens, we find the nearest petrol station on Google Maps. Can you guess how far away it is? 10 miles. <laughs> what are the chances? So we've got 10 miles left, and we've got 10 miles to go. But do we actually have 10 miles? It could be more like five. It could be one. We could break down on the side of a French motorway before we even make it. Anyway, we get off the motorway, and we're following Google Maps like our lives depended on it. And there's this fork in the road, and it goes left or right, but it's not very clear which lane you're supposed to be in. I don't know if you've ever experienced those kind of junctions if you're a driver. It's pretty nerve-wracking. So we're kind of, do we go left, do we go right, do we go left, do we go right? And eventually Isaac decides, my brother, decides to go in the right-hand lane. Bad choice. <laughs> the road keeps going, and if Google Maps does that thing sometimes, where you've taken a wrong turn, but it thinks, it assumes that you've carried on in the right direction, and then there's a sense of dread that just falls upon the car, because the place where we're going, the only petrol station we could find, the nearest one, we've just taken a wrong turn to go in completely the wrong direction. A sense of quiet falls over the car, as you can imagine. There's an acceptance of failure. There's a sense of defeat. I start Googling French roadside rescue, because I don't know what else to do. And this, road, this fork in the road, it veers round to the right, and we're essentially coming back on ourselves now. And we're out of gear, we're rolling down the road, and we turn the corner, and lo and behold, a petrol station. One that we hadn't even seen on Google Maps, one that we didn't even know existed. But you know the tall things that tell you the price of the petrol on them? All of a sudden, that began to appear on the horizon, and we started rolling down towards the petrol station. So thankfully, taking the wrong turn actually ended up paying benefits, because we ended up in the place where we needed to be. We just didn't know we needed to be there. So we roll into the petrol station with one mile left on the dashboard, fill up the tank with that sweet petroleum, and we make it all the way back home. I know we just played for the climate. <laughs> we'll brush over that. <laughs> it was quite a traumatic experience. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that, but those situations where they're beyond your control, you don't know what's going to happen. You end up in a place that you don't expect. It's a weird time. And that's the same thing that happens with Paul and his mates. They leave Antioch, and they're trying to get somewhere. But they end up in a place they don't want to be. It's kind of like, it's comparable to, uh, you're in Birmingham. Come on. And you're trying to get to Sheffield. And you leave, and for whatever reason, you end up in Manchester. And then the next day, you think, right, I'm going to try and get to Sheffield again. So you leave Manchester, you head to Sheffield, and you end up in Liverpool. Like, something's going on. So you decide, okay, I'm going to stay in Liverpool for the night and kind of see what's up. And whilst you're sleeping, you have a dream that you need to go to Ireland because there's something major going on there, and God's calling you to go there. If you're in Liverpool, it's a lot easier to get on a boat to go to Ireland than it is from Sheffield 
to get to Ireland, isn't it? Because you've got to come across the country again. Imagine this, but rather than cities and kind of hundreds of miles, I don't know, in a car or on a train, this is thousands of miles walking. This is months of travel. Like, this isn't anything lighthearted. If you're in the wrong place, you're in the wrong place. So after this long journey, they're in the place where they don't expect to be. I wonder if you can relate to this. To being blown off course. Maybe you're thinking, I don't even know why I'm here. I wanted to be somewhere else. Sheffield wasn't and isn't the place for me. Let's take a look at the first thing to do when you're blown off course. So this is drawn out of verses 6 and 7. I don't know if you've ever seen um, Takeshi's Castle. It's an old, uh, I think it's a Japanese TV show. Um, it's kind of like Ninja Warrior meets Total Wipeout, but just absolute carnage. It's amazing. Um, so there's this level where there's a series of, there's a row of, a series of rows, and each row has three doors. And two out of three of the doors are solid. And one of them is kind of paper mache. It's penetrable. Penetratable. Pene you can get through it. Um, and essentially, these contestants, they have to run as fast as they can to try and get through this wall, this door. And obviously, if you hit something that is hard, you're just going to come catapulting back. But if you hit something that is soft, you're going to go through it. And essentially, they have to just charge as fast as they can, kind of turn caution to the wind and just go for it. And it sounds kind of obvious, but when you hit a closed door and you're running full speed, it kind of hurts. It's kind of painful. My experience of these kind of closed doors was when I first came to uni. I'd done all my UCAS stuff. I'd been to visit a load of places um, up and down the country, decided on my course, I thought I'd do history. Um, and I put Leeds as my top choice. Is anyone from Leeds? Yeah. Oh, you're not from Leeds. You went there, okay. Went to uni in Leeds. Come on, Ben. Um, and I put Sheffield as my second choice. So Le my heart was set on Leeds. And Results Day comes along, and uh, I got a place and an offer, but uh, not quite as I expected. I actually ended up getting offered to do ancient history rather than straight history. Um, and I wasn't up for that, so I decided just to um, decline that offer and instead come to Sheffield. And I'd been to Sheffield once before. Um, I thought it was very nice. It was all right. Um, but my heart wasn't set on it. My heart was set to go to Leeds. So I move in um, September 2016. Um, I'm nervous, I'm excited in equal measure. And if I'm being brutally honest, the first couple of days of my uni experience were pretty bad. It was not at all what I thought uni was going to be like. I was in a flat with uh, five of the guys, none of whom left their rooms or wanted to do anything. They never wanted to hang out or go anywhere. So I'm here in this strange city, no friends, nothing to do. I'm looking on Instagram and seeing all my friends having the time of their lives, living at large in Leeds and all these cool places. And I sat there and I questioned, why am I here? Why am I not in Leeds? Why didn't I get in? Why didn't I just go there and accept ancient history? Sheffield's not the place for me. And I had to try so hard to meet people. I literally had to, on Freshers' Night, I remember knocking on people's doors of the halls of residences because I just, I just wanted to meet people and make friends. And like for someone that's not particularly extroverted, that was a big thing for me. After a few weeks, I did begin to make some friends and begin to settle in, but I couldn't stop thinking about what would happen if I would have gone to Leeds. What was I missing out on? So one weekend in October, I'd just been in Sheffield for a couple of weeks. My friends from home were all travelling up to Leeds to visit some other friends. 
And I was on and on about whether to go. I couldn't make up my mind. I thought, what if I go? And I realized that um, actually it was all a massive mistake coming here. Sheffield was just a waste of time. It was second best. But I decided to go and see my friends and try and have a good time. So I go, have a good time, see my friends. It's gone okay. I'm feeling okay about it. Actually, I'm feeling quite good about it. It doesn't feel like the place that could have been. It just felt like Leeds, whether that's a good thing or not. <laughs> and in classic Leeds fashion, it was dreary and overcast and raining as I left on that Sunday afternoon. And I jumped on the train, and I was thinking about things on the way home. And I remember leaving this kind of dark and dreary Leeds train station. And on the way back to Sheffield, just the clouds parted, the sun came out, and blue skies appeared across Sheffield. Blue skies, friendly, cheery Sheffield. And in, the, in that moment, the Lord spoke to me. Because suddenly, at that moment, Sheffield wasn't second best. Suddenly, it felt like I was meant to be here. And I'm sure if I ended up in Leeds, the Lord would have had good plans for me there. But he brought me to Sheffield for a reason. And I didn't know what it was. And if I'm being brutally honest, I still don't know what it is. <laughs> but I'm here, and I love this city, and it's my home. I had to confront the pain of Leeds. I had to confront the pain of the closed door. I had to pluck up the courage to go on a train, go to the place that should have been, and accept the fact that the Lord had different ideas. So I'd love us now just to take a moment just to consider the pain, to address those closed doors. Maybe it's a city. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a family member. And just want to encourage you to not shy away from how you feel. Maybe it's someone, maybe it's something, or maybe it's even you feel like it's God himself who's let you down. So we're going to take two minutes now. James is going to put some music on in the background. Just think on that question. What are those closed doors? What are the things in my life that um, I'm holding on to? The pain that those closed doors have brought to me. So we're just going to take two minutes just in the quiet, just press the music plays to think, let's address those closed doors. So I don't know what the Lord has brought to the forefront of your mind, but that's the first thing I want to encourage us to do when we get blown off course, address the closed doors. Second thing to draw from this passage, uh, verses 2 and 3 and verse 10, is don't do it alone. When we get blown off course, don't do it alone. And from this passage, we know that Paul is joined by Silas and by others. And then in verse 10, we see that Luke is joining them as well. So there's this whole squad of people that are going together. And, you know, we've, we've said about how far the journey is, that it's likely to take quite a long time. And they're not walking in silence. They're talking to each other. They're praying with one another. They're supporting one another and upholding one another. There's a lot of time to chat. There's a lot of opportunity to chew the fat and to get into it. And when things get out of hand, it's really easy to, um, to spiral and get caught in your own head. I know that's true for me. And speaking to friends can be a place uh, to kind of get us out of that. And when we get blown off course, it's important to have those people around us. You know, as, a first, as I said, in my first couple of weeks of uni, I had a really hard time meeting people. Church, for me, was a place of belonging. It was a place to be known and to be loved. And during my time here, I made friends who supported me and prayed with me and upheld me, some of whom are still here and some of whom are even in this room tonight. Because we're not made to be on our own. We're not made to do this journey of life on our own. 
We need community. We need friends. We need church. We need people around us. So maybe you might be here tonight and you've come by yourself. You know, I was in that boat once. I turned up at this church five years ago and didn't know anyone on my own. It's nerve-wracking, but it's brave. So if that's you tonight, well done. Well done. We'd love to get to know you. Maybe you're new to Sheffield. Maybe you've been here for a month or so and you feel like you don't have that connection with people. Maybe you're missing your friends from home. I was that too. But I assure you that you can find that here as well. Maybe you've been here for years. Maybe you've lived here your whole life and you don't feel like you have people to journey with in this way. That you don't have people alongside you. So let me encourage you tonight to be brave, to step out and to get plugged in. And we're going to take a moment to put this into practice. So if you know the person next to you, that's great. If you don't, even better. And the question I'd like to ask, or you to ask them, is when has someone really been there for you? So have a look around and make sure no one gets left out in this. But just turn to the person next to you and say, when has someone really been there for you? The music's going to come on again. We're just going to take a couple of minutes. So I hope you've had a good opportunity just to get to know the person next to you a little bit better, to hear a little bit of their story. So it's good to do things with others. We're not made to do this journey alone. That's the model that we see in Scripture. That's the model that we see from Paul and his friends. And finally, we're coming into land. Uh, remember who sent you. So when you get blown off course, remember who sent you. We read in the passage uh, that Paul concludes, he says that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul concludes that God's calling them to Macedonia. Therefore, God had sent them to Troas. He'd sent them off course. He'd blown them off course for a reason, because he had a purpose and a plan and a future for them that was beyond their understanding in a place that they didn't even know and didn't even consider. And we know that God had a plan for them. And we know that God has a plan for us too, right? He has a future for us because we are a sent people. We are his ambassadors. But what does that even mean? It means that we represent God in this world. It means that we represent his kingdom. We carry his light. We carry his presence. We carry his spirit. Where we go, he is. And where we go, he goes. You see, ambassadors are often sent to places that are dangerous, that are hostile, that are foreign. But sometimes ambassadors are sent to places that are lonely, that are isolating, that are distant, that are unfamiliar. Maybe that's how you feel tonight that you've been sent to a place that is lonely, that is isolating, that is distant, that is unfamiliar. But the thing I want to remind us of, and I'm preaching to myself as much here, is that we are sent by God, that he sends us to where we go, that we go in his name, and when we go in his name, he is there with us. Because in the passage, there's a reason for all of this. There was a reason that Paul and his mates got massively blown off course, thousands of miles out of their way. Because they're being sent by God. They needed to be close to Macedonia, not thousands of miles away in the place that they intended to go. And I believe that each of us have been called and sent to Sheffield for such a time as this. 
Even if you've lived here your whole life, if you've always called it home, you've still been sent and called by God. And it means that God's got a plan for you here, whether that's for a season, whether that's for a lifetime. And I'm not saying that God's got something here for each of you that's going to, I don't know, revolutionize the world and people are going to build statues in your honor across the city of Sheffield or you're going to get like one of those blue plaques that you get in London saying, I don't know, Molly Clark lived in this house this year to this year. I'm not saying that. Maybe for some of you that's true, um, but that's not quite what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we believe and we follow a God who doesn't make mistakes and that each of you, each of us, I believe we're brought to Sheffield by a God who doesn't make mistakes. And you may probably feel like, I don't know what the specific task or job or role God has for me in this city. Neither do I. <laughs> Neither do I. I don't, I don't know if God has a specific task for me here. When I moved here, I didn't think I'd end up doing this. I didn't think I'd end up standing here speaking to you tonight. And I don't think that God brought me specifically here to do this. I think the call he's placed on my life is far broader than that. It's not tied to a role or to a job or to a task. For all of us, though, the call that God's placed on our lives is to love him, love this city, and love its people. You know, fundamentally, that's it. That's the baseline. That's the foundation. So if anyone asks you what's your calling, that's your answer, to love God, love this city, and love its people. And, you know, each of us, we have an individual calling as well of that, that on top of that, you can add to it whatever you want. But that is the visionary rock on which we stand and in which we operate, to love God, love this city, and love this people. So when we get blown off course, three things to remember. Address the closed doors. Don't do it alone. And remember the God who sent you, that loves you, that cares for you, that's got a plan for you, a future for you. And just reminded of a verse in 1 Thessalonians that says, um, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And that's the promise that we stand in tonight. That he who has called us is faithful and he will do it.